Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So without further ado, please give a warm round of applause for Charles Baxter. Thank you all for coming. It's a great pleasure to be here and to see so many of you here, uh, many friends, uh, former students, colleagues. Uh, as I say, a great pleasure. So uh, what I thought I would do is speak for a minute about this book, which is called There's Something I Want You to Do, and then to read uh, an excerpt of fiction that is not in it. Publishers hate it when you do this. Uh, But uh, my experience of bookstore readings is that often you come to the bookstore, the author opens his or her book, and you open your own copy, and you think, oh, I could read it better than he's reading it. So I thought what I would do is to read a section from one of the stories that I cut out of the book and do my best to explain why it's not in it. Um, The the, the book is called There's Something I Want You to Do, and the title is based on something that occurred to me or that I thought of when I had attended a performance of Hamlet at the Guthrie Theater in my hometown of Minneapolis. And um, in the first act, as you know, the ghost of Hamlet's father appears to Hamlet and more or less says, there's something I want you to do. I want you to avenge my death. I want you to honor your mother and I want you to remember me and I want you to do all of these things soon, more or less soon. Uh, and I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And then there was a sort of garage and truck performance of King Lear a month or so later, also in Minneapolis. And as you know, in the opening act, Lear turns to his daughters and says, there's something I want you to do. I want you to tell me how much you love me. And I thought that late in my writing life that I had discovered something very important, which was that certain kinds of dramatic stories can be set into motion by a request made by someone to someone else who is in debt to that person or whose love is in question. There's a line in one of Raymond Carver's stories, I think it's Cathedral, in which one character says to another, if you love me, you'll do what I ask. Uh, And it wasn't that I wanted to construct a, a, a book around this, but I felt that for my own purposes, for the kind of book that I wanted to write, uh, that it could be a kind of pivot point for some of the stories. I had gone through a long dry period, uh, just total barrenness, and I had gone through some of my old papers 
and found a story that I had abandoned. Uh, I didn't know enough about the characters. It was about a, a, a woman who goes through a siege of postpartum depression, leaves her husband, leaves the baby behind, gets in a car and drives away. This is how old it was. It was typewritten. Uh, And I found these pages and I thought, oh, I know who these people are. I know how to finish this. And I put it together and it became a story called Loyalty. And the next story I wrote um, had incorporated certain features of the city of Prague where I had just visited. And it turned into a story called Bravery. And I thought, well, I seem to be writing a book about the virtues. And my worry was... Nobody wants to read a book called The Virtues. Uh, they're just not going to want that. And, and so I worried about this a great deal and had, I found myself at the university, no, it was Penn State University in Erie, and read Loyalty. And I, the, the students in the, in the audience asked me what I was going to be Doing, I said, well, I think I'm writing a book about the, some virtues and some vices. I had seen that wonderful series, The Decalogue, that Krzysztof Kozlowski had put together for Polish television. Just a, an, an incredible series. And I thought, well, I wonder if it's possible to do something like that about certain features of the moral life that don't result in moralism. And a kid in the audience asked me, he raised his hand and he said, are you going to put the same characters in the vices who are in the virtues? And I said, I hadn't thought of that. That's a great idea. Maybe, maybe I'll do that. And in fact, that's, that's what I did. Um, the story in this book that cost me the most trouble uh, was chastity. Uh, I, and I wrote, I think, a couple of hundred pages Uh, that finally was boiled down to about 20 or or 30. And at the center of that story is a young architect named Benny Takamitsu, who at the beginning of the story is getting dressed in in his apartment, and it's a city apartment, and like many city apartments, the window is open, and he hears sounds from the street, and the story opens when he hears when he hears a scream. And because he's in the city, he doesn't know what kind of scream it is or what he should do about it. So he looks out the window, he doesn't see anybody, he gets dressed, and then he hears a second scream. No, there it was again, a second scream. He put on his shoes, ran down the stairwell, and stepped outside. He turned northeast. The day presented him with brick and asphalt, scraggly warehouse district trees, a school bus, a construction crane, in the distance, the sun shining over them all. A scream, but no screamer. Another jogger passed by and frowned at him. Overhead, a large black bird was flapping around, 
chased by a sparrow or a starling. He couldn't tell one bird from another. Stopping for a moment, he saw a ringlet of red hair on the sidewalk as if somebody had violently yanked it out from someone else's scalp. Benny went back inside and after breakfast set off to work. What that passage doesn't say is that Benny has bent over and picked up the ringlet of red hair and put it into his pocket and in the next scene he has coffee with his friend uh, a pediatrician and he shows the hair to the pediatrician and the pediatrician says there's something I want you to do and Benny says what and the doctor says get rid of that hair (laughs) and then this scene follows and this is the scene that I cut out That weekend, on a Saturday afternoon, Benny swung by his mother's house, a large ramshackle and vine-covered tutor where he had grown up. She had invited him over about some matter she wouldn't specify. Her front lawn, dotted with crabgrass and creeping Charlie, hadn't been mowed for over a week and a green water hose unattached to a faucet or sprinkler was splayed out on an S pattern close to the sidewalk. The hose would leave that pattern on the grass once she picked it up. From habit or politeness, he rang the front doorbell, inspiring a weary bark from the dog inside. And when his mother didn't answer, he walked in smelling the old familiar smells of peppery vinegar and wood before he advanced through the living room where Lucille, the ancient mutt, lying under the coffee table, thumped her tail in happy recognition when Benny greeted her and scratched her behind the ears. She did not bother to get up. At her age, it was too much effort. Through the kitchen window, Benny saw his mother in the backyard doing her daily solitary yoga exercise. She stood in warrior pose, her arms extended at shoulder height, and her head turned so that her eyes gazed over her left hand. A lit cigarette hung from her mouth, and she squinted through the smoke. His mother's hair was graying rapidly now. The sun lit it so that the gray had a kind of cool radiance. An ashtray and a cell phone rested on a nearby tree stump. After going out through the back door, Benny went up to his mother and kissed her on the cheek and kissed her cheek on the side away from the cigarette. Hi, darling, his mother said. What a pleasant surprise. Want to join me? She brought her legs together and raised her arms in the sun salute. I don't know, Benny said. After a moment, he said, no, I don't think so. She lowered herself into a downward-facing dog. 
The cigarette gave his mother the appearance of someone trying to improve her health and to ruin it simultaneously. Her ex-husband, Benny's father, a businessman named Edward, had left her several years ago for a younger blonde, Benny's age. The split had liberated or destabilized his mother. Benny wasn't sure which. She'd become sweet and vulnerable to fads, and she had taken up smoking. She was no longer characteristic of herself. For years, she'd worked as an elementary school teacher and had imported into the household the strict habits she had acquired taming second graders. Her starchy passion for order had been her essence. Now, she was someone else. He didn't like this particular person his mother had turned into, but you don't have to like your mother. The whole business goes deeper than that. Well, if you're not going to do yoga, then just go over there and weed the garden until I'm done, she said, showing a trace of her old familiar bullying. Benny sauntered towards some peonies and, down on his knees, started weeding the soil underneath his fingertips. Uh, the soil nestled under his fingernails as he worked. He loved the coolness of dirt and felt that he owed his mother this favor. When she had finished her yoga, bringing her hands to heart center, his mother walked over to Benny and kissed him on the back of the head. You're getting bald, she observed. Her voice had acquired a phlegmy rasp from all the cigarettes, and she sounded like a labor organizer at the end of an all-day meeting. Thanks for dropping by, she said. We might as well skip the small talk. You know, dear, I have to steal myself for what I'm about to say. There's something I want you to do. Benny flinched. Standing up, he told her, that's the second time this week somebody has said that to me. Well, it's a common expression, his mother said. She lit another cigarette and was now massaging her cheekbone. Well, I'm not used to it, Benny told her. Maybe you should be, she replied. People should ask more of you. You've led an undemanding life, though I don't mean that as criticism. Anyway, here's what I want you to do. Yes? She put her hand on his shoulder. The sun continued to burn down on her gray hair. Don't be mad, okay? Anyway, it's a small request, she informed him with the ghost of a mocking smile. Here it is. Her voice suddenly rose. Damn it, Benny, and forgive me, but I want you to get married and have children. Please, and I want you to do it pronto, right now. I'm tired of waiting. Listen, I haven't got all the time in the world, and I've run out of the usual pleasantries. You want to see my Medicare card? I can show it to you. You act like there's no urgency to anything. Whatever stands in front of you, you saunter to it. Stop sauntering. Stop lollygagging. Find a woman, anybody, I don't care who, and love her. Do you even understand what I'm saying, honey? Do you have any idea at all? Of course I do. But what you're asking me is, he searched for the right word. Unfair. Well, I'm not interested in fair, she said. You're my only child. I want grandchildren. That's about the only thing I want. And I want them right now before I'm dead. <laughs> All at once, the steam appeared to go out of her, and her arms fell down to her sides. Well, 
she admitted. I've always been too direct. Your father used to complain about how I would say anything to anybody and could mess up any social event we were invited to. He said I was brash. Oh, I hate that word. But the point is, you're loitering through existence, and I'm running out of time. I know it, and I can feel it. I'm sorry I called you a zombie. (laughs) There was a long pause, and then Benny said, Actually, you didn't call me that. You were just thinking it. You didn't say it. Somebody called me a vampire a few days ago, so I guess monsters are in the air. I guess so, she said. You want some lunch? I can make you a sandwich. (laughs) No thanks, Benny said. All at once registering a touch of delayed anger. With him, anger always arrived belatedly, long after the moment when he might have usefully deployed it. I've had lunch. Mom, have you even checked the time? He displayed his watch. No, you haven't. It's 3.30. Her inability to be prompt for appointments had become a new annoying wrinkle in his mother's character and somehow had become lovable to everybody now except Benny. Her indifference to punctuality was a mannerism. Out of spite, she was turning herself into an old hippie. She put her hand on his arm, apparently from sheer affection, and she smiled at him, but her breath smelled of the menthol cigarette whose butt she had tossed into a bed of petunias a moment ago and of the new one she had in her mouth now. Okay, she said, no sandwiches for you. By the way, your grandmother wants to see you. Your father called to say that she's bored and she wants visitors. You see? That's what it's all about. Grandchildren. Your father says she's starting to lose her memory. Well, I won't pester you about it. About the grandchildren, I mean. All at once, Benny felt himself losing his temper. What the fuck, Ma? You are pestering me about it. He felt he had a right to his own anger, even if it was delayed. So, okay, I'm going now. You've told me what you want to tell me, and I'm out of here. I'll be seeing you. She gave him a long, appraising look. You shouldn't say fuck in front of me, she told him. I don't like it when you do that. It's very coarse and trashy and reflects poorly on me as a parent. As for tact, no, I never had a firm grasp on that particular virtue. So that's the scene that's gone. That's the scene that's not in the book. And I'll just read you uh, a page, or less than a page, um, of what originally followed that. Um, Benny, every evening, walks along the Mississippi River uh, in Minneapolis all the way down to the Washington Avenue Bridge, which in Minneapolis is, for all literary people, it's a kind of cursed bridge because it's the bridge from which the poet John Berryman uh, threw himself to his death. So, you know, anybody who, th- who thinks about that bridge thinks about Berriman. Uh, so, 
I'll just read you this, this one passage. Um, three weeks later, on his way out to his evening stroll, Benny passed two of his friends, the women, from down the hall, Donna and Ellie. And I'm just going to skip some. By the time he reached the Washington Avenue Bridge across the Mississippi, he had worked up a light sweat. He planned to cross the river, turn around, and then head back. Crossing the bridge on the pedestrian level, he counted the number of people on foot. He liked taking inventories. Solid figures reassured him. About seven people were out tonight, including one guy with a backpack and a young woman with a vaguely studenty appearance who stood motionless, leaning against the railing and staring down at the river. The young woman tapped her fingers along the guardrail, took out a cell phone, and after taking a picture of herself, dropped the phone into the river below. She licked her lips and laughed softly as the phone disappeared down into the dark. Benny stopped. Something was about to happen. As he watched, she gathered herself up and with a quick movement, hoisted herself over so that she was standing on the railing's other side with her arms braced on the metalwork behind her. If she released her arms and leaned forward, she would plunge down into the river. One jogger went right past her without noticing what she was doing. What was she doing? Benny hurried toward her. Seeing him out of the corner of her eye, she turned and smirked. Stop, he commanded. Wait, don't. He wasn't even sure what to say. What are you doing? Who are you? I'm nobody, she said. Who are you? Well, I'm just Benny, he said. That's dangerous, what you're doing. Please, what, why are you doing that? No reason, she said, for fun, a cheap thrill. I'm bungee jumping, she said, only without the bungee. See the cord? She pointed down to where no, to where no cord was visible. Just kidding. It's imaginary. Also, I've been feeling really cold behind my eyes, she said, so I thought I'd do something to heat myself up. Her speech style was oddly animated, and she seemed very pretty in a drab sort of way, like an honorable mentioned beauty queen who hadn't taken proper care of herself. Something was off in the grooming department. Her long brown hair fell over her shoulders, and her T-shirt had a corporate logo and the words, Just Do It, across the front. Her eyes, when she glanced at Benny, were deep and penetrating. She gave off a shadowy gleam. I I've been feeling kind of temporary lately, she said. How about you, Benny? You've been feeling permanent? He reached out for her arm and clasped it. Yes, I have, he said. So, please come back. Fuck you doing, she said laughing. Don't harass me. Let go. Let go of me or maybe I'll actually jump. Irony was the new form of chastity and was everywhere these days. You never knew whether people meant what they said or whether it was all a goof. Uh, so, of course, he... <laughs> She's the woman he marries. 
and has a child with. Um, and um, what I should say, I guess, uh, is that um, I, I cut the scene that I read to you uh, for all sorts of reasons, though somewhat reluctantly, because um, there were there were two things in it I liked and wanted to save. One is you don't have to like your mother. The whole business goes deeper than that. Uh, and um, th- the other thing that I liked, but which had no business in the story, was the image of a woman in warrior pose. I'm in Los Angeles, so I don't actually... Well, I'll do it. It's, this is warrior pose. <laughs> and having a cigarette coming out of her mouth... But the tone was all wrong. Um, the tone was wrong for the story because the story is actually fairly somber. And to the degree that there's any humor or irony in it, it's not Benny's. It belongs to Susan, the woman he meets on the bridge. She is... She's somewhat bipolar. She works during the day at a daycare center, and at in the evenings she uh, ha- she's a stand-up comedian. Uh, and I thought um, all of the humor, all of the comedy, such as it was, had to go over in her direction um, because there was something wrong about the way she deployed it, and I couldn't bring it into to the mother's scene. But the the, the story um, was one in which um, essentially I was working my way to the line: irony was the new form of chastity. And once I got to that line, I thought, well, if I got to that, then at least I can get to the end of it. Um, so I think I'll, I'll stop in my, in, in, in my talk at this point. I, I'm, I have one eye on my, on, on my watch and ask um, if there are questions. Um, yes? Oh, um, I would want to explain a little more about why you think irony why is irony the new form of chastity pardon me if I take a, a, a bit of water while I think it seems to me that um, irony understood as as uh, a, a, a way of refusing intimacy, of of refusing sincerity, but particularly intimacy, uh, has a a way of deflecting uh, what is said by purely verbal means that shut down uh, the operations of true uh, conversation. And uh, turns conversation into a a kind of banter. Now, irony can be understood in a lot of different ways. And um, in in this case, I I wanted it to be the sort of attitude that most of us, or many of us, go through in our 20s and gradually outgrow. 
and uh, Sarah, the the woman who Benny falls in love with, can't get past it. She cannot get past it. Every everything that is said to her, she understands and replies to with a kind of banter that just shuts down the possibility of intimacy. She makes Benny laugh, which he finds very appealing. Uh, I don't know if that answers if that answers your question. Well, then you have to sort of my chastity now because you're talking about intimacy. Yeah. Uh, the, the chastity and intimacy. Chastity understood in the classic sense does not uh, close down the possibility of intimacy. It's a very particular kind of virtue. But I was, in a sense, I was kind of rewriting these definitions for myself. I, I, actually, I'd, I'd like to read the epigraph to the book, which I happened upon when I was in the middle of, of writing it. This is from Primo Levi's The Reawakening, which is the sequel to Survival in Auschwitz. And it has to do, the book has to do with the the long journal, journey that Levy took from Auschwitz back to Italy. It took him many months. He met, he met all kinds of characters, in particular one man who is a kind of bully, but whom he ended up admiring. This is, this is what he writes. It is common knowledge that nobody is born with a Decalogue already formed but that everyone builds his own either during his life or at the end on the basis of his own experiences or those of others which can be assimilated to his own so that everybody's moral universe suitably interpreted comes to be identified with the sum of his former experiences and so represents an abridged form of his biography. It's a beautiful, beautiful quotation. Just beautiful. So I thought, what if we were to, if I were to ask everybody here to write a book about the virtues and vices, what Levy is essentially arguing is that you would be writing a form of your biography um, based on what you understand of these things in light of the experiences you've had. And um, with, with, chastity, I felt that there were really two stages. That there was the stage that included irony, but there was a later stage that's much more profound uh, that has to do with what Kierkegaard calls uh, the willingness to, or the, the wish to will only one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. That's a that's a real chastity, uh, and and that's beautiful. That's beautiful, and that's what I was working my way toward. It's kind of buried in the story, but that's what it is. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Yes. 
the dropping of the cell phone into the water, it's almost like, so she's kind of killing an aspect of herself. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. And that's why, where it's actually finds love. Mm-hmm. And relating that to what you just said about how purity of heart is, it kind of like the diagnosis of the late 20s female? <laughs> like, oh, I would never say that. <laughs> I would never say that. No, I mean, that. Uh, that's that's too global, I think. But I thought readers would be shocked if somebody dropped a cell phone into the water. <laughs> sure it is. It's an, it's an iPhone. She just took a picture of herself and then she drops it into the water. Uh, and uh, you know, I was just thinking of this, of this in dr- purely dramatic terms. What does it say about somebody who would do that? And, and what do we think about her after she's done it? Uh, it's, it's like, it's as if she had cut off some part of herself and dropped it into the water. Uh, I thought it was... I thought it was shocking. I thought it was shocking. What she had done, yes. So you cut out the moment when the mother says, "Will you do this?" Thing yeah, for me. yeah. And so, so do you get that? Do you put that in in a different way, or or was it just scaffolding? I was afraid that the book or that the story would seem too schematic. If if I had that episode, in, I mean, not only was the tone wrong, but if the scene on the bridge immediately follows the scene that I just read to you, it's going to look as if the the cause and effect is just too clear. It's too obvious. Benny is under orders from his mother to do this thing, and I. I think that human motivation is much more complex than that. And I didn't, I didn't want all of the arrows in the story to be pointing in the same direction. I felt it was enough if the story began with a scream, a response to which Benny is not um, ready for. Um, I mean, if you're in a city and you hear a scream way in the distance, what are you going to do? But it seems as if you should do something. Um, you, you, you can't just sit. And the idea that there's a, a kind of scream floating above the events of the story that's calling for a response makes it seem as if Benny is in a position where he needs to be involved. He thinks he needs to be involved in some kind of rescue. Some kind of rescue operation. These are not the best motivations to start a relationship with. (laughs) They're not very good at all. Uh, And I thought, you know, it's enough to suggest that and then to leave it behind so that it is, let's say, floating in the reader's consciousness or memory when we get to the scene to the woman, with the woman on the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Michael? She, when she's joking with him, she says that her name is Madeline Elster. Yes. Which is the name of the woman, I think. Vertigo. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
going to ask her to change her to conform with that red coil. And I wondered about vertigo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you all heard the question. When he asks her what her name is, she says it's Madeline Elster, which is the name of the woman in Hitchcock's Vertigo. And that, too, is a story of rescue. But the other thing about her is that she's an open pit mine of of quotations. Uh, The first time he sees her and asks her who she is, she says, I'm nobody, who are you? Which is Emily Dickinson. And then when she says, "Uh, I've been feeling kind of temporary lately, that's from Death of a Salesman. That's what Willie Loman says when he comes home in Act One. So, I mean, she keeps coming at him with these memorized uh, statements. It's as if you have to get through one layer after another with her. Um, but she is, she's, she is a woman whom Benny feels he can do something for and who makes him laugh, which is a kind of fatal combination for, for him. Um, and uh, I wanted to write a, a somber story that was funny. Uh, and I, I was trying to keep those two things going in the story at once. Uh, she announces her pregnancy uh, during her act. Uh, I've subsequently heard that 